The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. A university student spent weeks studying for the final exam in the animal science course that he was taking. The day of the exam came, he felt more than ready as he settled back in his desk along with the 400 other students in this large auditorium who were taking this exam. And then it happened. The teacher pulled out a chart, a chart that had different pictures of birds' legs. And then the teacher said, this is your exam, ladies and gentlemen. Name these birds simply by looking at their legs. Well, after five minutes, this student was furious, absolutely furious. He walked to the front of the room, slammed his empty exam paper on the table in front of the professor and said, listen, this is unbelievable. You are the worst professor I have ever had in my life. You, sir, are a joke. And then the, two, the, the students started to storm out of the room. Well, before the student reached the door, the professor yelled at him and said, hey, young man, what's your name? And the student turned around, raised up his pant legs and said, you tell me. <laughs> Life is filled with questions, isn't it? We're surrounded by unsolved puzzles. And at Broadway Church, we're in the middle of uh, a teaching series that's designed to answer a crucial question. The question that we're trying to answer is this. What does it mean to be blessed by God? What does the blessing of God look like? Now, the one to whom we're looking to give us the answer is Jesus. And the place we're looking to find his answer is in the opening words of the arguably the most famous sermon he ever preached. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's called that because it was a sermon and he preached it on a mountainside. Now Jesus began his famous sermon by pronouncing eight blessings. They're known as the eight Beatitudes. Beatitude is simply a fancy thousand dollar word for blessing. Let's read those eight Beatitudes, those eight blessings together. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. It's also on the screen behind me. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now for the longest time, I thought Jesus was giving me a checklist here. A checklist of eight things to do in order to earn God's blessing. But that's not what the Beatitudes are about at all. 
As we learned our first week in this series, the Beatitudes are not a prescription for God's blessings. The Beatitudes are a description of God's blessing. You see the difference? They're not a prescription for God's blessing. They're a description of God's blessing. In other words, this isn't Jesus telling us some of the most effective activities where God's blessings can be earned. No, this is Jesus telling us some of the most unexpected places where God's blessing can be found. How do we know this distinction? We know this by doing what every good Bible student does. We study what Jesus said and when Jesus said it. See, context is crucial as we're about to learn today. Eight times here, Jesus declared, blessed are, 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 and blessed are. Do you think the word blessed is kind of important in this context? What does the word blessed actually mean? You can't understand the meaning of what Jesus is saying in this passage without understanding the meaning of this one word. Now, a couple weeks ago, we learned exactly what the word blessed means when used in the context of blessing of God. I want to revisit this each week because it's important as as our starting point here, our foundation. We learn to be blessed by God means to be endorsed by God. It's the proverbial thumbs up from God. When you read blessed, it means endorsed by God, thumbs up from God. We learn that to be blessed by God means to be aligned with God. It means to have your life pointing in the same direction that God's life is pointing. And we learn that to be blessed by God means to be in sync with God, meaning you are mirroring God's attitude, you're mirroring God's actions. When you read blessed by God, think endorsed by God, aligned with God, in sync with God. But we learned something else a few weeks ago that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying in this famous passage. We learned what was in the minds of Jesus' initial audience when they were picturing what God's blessing looked like. The people to whom he first spoke, what were they thinking when they heard blessed? We learned that when a first century Jew thought of God's blessing, they thought of four key things. They thought the more wealth you had, the more you were blessed. In other words, the more money you had in your pockets, the more blessing you had in your life. If you were poor, you were outside of God's blessing in the first century Jewish mind. The first century mind thought the healthier you were, the more you were blessed. So if you had sickness and you were struggling with an illness, God had withdrawn his blessing to some degree, or maybe you were even cursed. But if you were in absolute health, you had God's blessing on your life. And they thought the more power you had, the more you were blessed. So the more connected you were, the higher you ranked in society, that was a sign that God was blessing your life. And when you combine wealth and health with power, wow, you are untouchable. God loved you, which confused them when they saw wicked, wealthy, healthy people. They thought, how is God blessing wicked? And then, the more that life went your way, the more you were blessed. We would call it lucky. The luckier you were, the more things seemed to fall into your lap. That was a sign of God's blessing in your life, so they thought. Well, with that in mind, when we pull it all together, we begin to see how radical and revolutionary Jesus' words were that day. Because Jesus raised his voice in front of that crowd and Jesus declared, endorsed by God are the poor in spirit. 
Aligned with God are those who mourn. And they would have said, what, 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 what did he just say? I didn't hear what he just said. Your camel burped, I didn't hear. What did he just say? Did he really just claim that the poor are blessed? Did he really just say that people who are in mourning are blessed? What's he talking about? Over the last two weeks, we learned what Jesus was talking about with these first two beatitudes, these first two blessings. Two weeks ago, we tackled the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we learned that when you acknowledge your emptiness, you experience God's fullness. Last week, Pastor Simon did a great job unpacking the second blessing. And his big idea last week, when when looking at the verse, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted, was this, when you display externally what God has revealed internally, you'll be comforted eternally. And today we move to the third beatitude, the third blessing from Jesus. It's in verse five of chapter five. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, what are the words, the first words that come to your mind when you think of the word meek? For me, the first words that came to my mind were wimp, spineless, doormat. That's what I thought of when I thought of meek. Ah, wimp, spineless, doormat. Someone just gets walked on because they're so weak and spineless. A big tough guy walks into a bar and he shouts to everyone in the bar at the top of his voice, all right, everybody, listen up. Everyone on this side of the room is a whiny little mama's boy. And everyone on this side of the room is a sniveling little coward. Anybody want to do anything about that? Immediately, a little guy in the far corner slowly and gingerly stands up and starts walking. And, and the big tough guy says, hey, buddy, what do you think you're doing? And the guy says, I'm sorry, I think I'm on the wrong side of the room. <laughs> Is that what meek looks like? Does being meek mean being a wimp? We're going to answer that question in just a moment. But according to Jesus, he said that the meek are the ones who are gonna inherit the earth. What does it mean to inherit the earth? Now we can lose sight of what this phrase means if we forget the original context. Let's remind ourselves to whom Jesus first spoke these words. Jesus was speaking to a crowd of first, predominantly, first century Jews in first century Palestine. Now, first century Palestine is a lot like 21st century Palestine in one way. It was all about the land. There was, as there remains, a passionate attachment to the land. Every first century Jew who was in Jesus' audience that day, I'm sure would have been thinking the same thing. The land of Palestine was their inheritance. The land had been given to their forefather, Abraham. It was their land, and these dirty Romans had come in and had taken their inheritance from them. So the first century Jews were constantly revolting against Rome. They were striving to break free from their Roman oppressors. They were working to claw back their land. They were struggling to reclaim their promise, struggling to reclaim their inheritance. And in the midst of that, Jesus steps up and says, 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I dare say that when we hear Jesus' words, we hear them as being far more grandiose than his initial audience would have heard them. When we hear inherit the earth, we have lofty visions of ruling the planet. But Jesus' initial audience that day wasn't thinking global domination. They had, didn't have one iota of interest in Italy or Ethiopia. The only place they were interested in was Palestine. So when they heard inherit the earth, they heard inherit Palestine. Why do I think this? Well, it's important to note something. The original Greek word translated earth here simply means soil. It means soil or land or earth. Any of those three words could be used to fit in this verse. What Jesus said was, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the soil. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Jesus' initial audience only cared about their land, their soil, their earth, their promised land, their promised inheritance. So you got to know that this phrase grabbed the attention of many in his audience that day. In a way, it wouldn't grab our attention. What did he just say? Did I hear him correctly? Did he just say who's going to take over Palestine? So what did Jesus say here? What does blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land, the soil, the earth? What does that mean? Is Jesus saying blessed are the wimps, for the wimps will conquer the Romans? Is Jesus offering some kind of revenge of the nerds prophecy here? Is that what this is about? With our remaining time together, I'm going to do my best to unpack this verse. So what does it mean to be meek? Let me begin by telling you what it doesn't mean. Meek does not mean wimp. Meek does not mean wimp. You say, how do you know this, Darren? I know this for two main reasons. One, by studying the meaning of the original Greek word that is translated meek here. And secondly, by looking at the lives of the only two people in the Bible described as being meek. So, so first of all, as we've pointed out several times, the original New Testament documents were written in ancient Greek because that was the universal language of the day, like English is today in the 21st century. Well, the word translated as meek in the original Greek text means power under control. When you see the word meek in the New Testament, think power under control. Some first century writers use this word meek to describe uh, domesticated animals, like a horse, for example. It was the word used to describe a powerful animal that had learned to accept the control of its master. When I was young, my family had a racehorse. I, I wasn't raised on a farm. I was raised as a city boy. But we had a racehorse that was stabled at a, a, a farm outside of our city. And it would go and visit the racehorse. Now, this racehorse had only raced twice. Technically once. Her name was Mixed Joy, Lickety Split was the, the name, the official name. And she won her first race that she ever ran. The second race, she stumbled out of the gate and it freaked her out and she would never go back into a gate again. And so here she was at the stable and when you would go and visit her, when I would go and visit her, I marveled at the size of this animal. I mean, when you see a horse on television or something, that's one thing. But to stand beside an actual racehorse, the muscles, the strength in those animals are incredible. 
And I remember the first time sitting on her back and holding on to those reins and seeing the muscles rippling in her shoulders and in her neck, the sickness of her neck and her mane. And I remember thinking, wow, you think I'm in control, but I am scared of you. And if you ever wanted to throw me off or something, you would be in complete control. You are much more powerful than I am. But that powerful animal responded to the tiniest tug on her bridle. That racehorse was powerful, but that racehorse was also meek. It was a picture, she was a picture of power under control. Well, in the realm of human relationships, this concept of meekness takes on another layer of meaning, a moral and ethical layer. It's not only power under control, but meekness is also power without poison. It's power without poison. What do I mean by that? It's power that's used with purity. It's power that is never used to manipulate, to harm, to exploit others. It's the presence of power, but the absence of power tripping. See the difference? Meekness is the presence of power, but it's the absence of power tripping. I love the story of the grandmother. She overheard her little five-year-old granddaughter in the next room playing wedding with her Barbie and Ken dolls. Barbie and Ken were getting married, and this little girl, the five-year-old granddaughter, was presiding over the wedding. And the little granddaughter shouted out these, uh, the, the wedding vows. The little granddaughter says, all right, here's the vows. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say or do will be held against you. You have the right to have an attorney present you may kiss the bride. <laughs> that is the opposite of meekness. Meekness is not power tripping. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is power without poison. But there's another reason why we know that meek is not wimpy. And it comes from something more than studying the word meek in the Bible. It comes from studying the lives of the only two individuals in the Bible who are described as being meek. There's only two individuals in the Bible described as being meek. One of them, as you see in the screen behind me, is Moses. Moses was described as meek. There's only one other that we'll get to in a moment. Now, I know some people who are meek. We have a meek person on staff, Pastor Meek, who's our disciple. <laughs> but he's not in the Bible. Moses is described as meek. Now, we read about Moses in several places in the Old Testament, but the place we're going to focus in on today is the book of Numbers. Look what it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. You're thinking, Darren, well, where, where's meek? Where does it say Moses was meek in that verse? Do you see the word humble? Let's um, underline the word humble there. That word humble... In the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that's the version of the Old Testament that the apostles had access to. Jesus would have had access to it. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word humble is the identical word that's used, translated meek in the New Testament. It's simply translated as humble in this version. You could insert the word meek there if you wanted to and still be true to the original language. Moses was one of the greatest leaders in human history. He was born into a race that had been targeted for destruction, yet was adopted by the king of the most powerful nation at that time, the nation of Egypt, the Pharaoh. 
Now, Moses would have been intellectually powerful as he would have been trained in the finest schools of his day. We know he was physically powerful because he was powerful enough to kill another human being with his bare hands. He was emotionally powerful enough to challenge and stare down the Egyptian pharaoh and his entire army. He was politically powerful enough to lead a mass exodus of over a million people out of Egypt. And he was spiritually powerful enough to be used by God to part the Red Sea and to be used by God to be trusted to communicate God's words to that nation. Moses was a powerful man. One day, after Moses had successfully led this entire nation out from under 400 years of slavery and bondage, Moses' sister Marion and his brother Aaron decided they were going to challenge Moses publicly. Now, in a shame-based Middle Eastern culture, challenging publicly like this was not smart. They didn't like the fact that Moses got to be the big leader, so they called Moses out on this publicly. And they didn't like the fact that God spoke through Moses and Moses alone. So they complained about this publicly. And while they were at it, they thought they'd let Moses know that they didn't like his wife either. And they let everyone know about it publicly. So how did the powerful Moses respond? Well, that's where the verse uh, from Numbers chapter 12 comes in that we have on the screen. It's in the middle of the description of this rebellion that this verse is inserted. Now Moses was a very humble, very meek man, more humble, more meek than anyone else in the face of the earth. The writer here is telling us that Moses refused to lash out. Moses refused to power trip on them. Moses let God defend him. Not because Moses was a wimp, but because Moses was meek. Moses had all kinds of power, but his power was under control. His power wasn't poisoned. Moses relied upon God's ability to take care of things. The only other person in the Bible described using this word is Jesus. Jesus actually described himself using the same word translated meek in today's beatitude. Jesus' self-description is recorded in Matthew chapter 11. says this. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. What's a yoke? We'll learn in a second. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you see that word gentle? It's the same Greek word translated meek in the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Now think about this. Think about how crucial this is. This is Jesus, who is actually God in flesh. He's God in flesh. He is the all-powerful God who has taken on human form. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the the beginning, the end, the almighty, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. In fact, during our worship service, 
uh, one of our members had a vision that they wrote down and shared with me. It says, Pastor Darren, the Lord gave me a word. I, I, I had a vision and a word about his power. He sits on a throne with no shortening, no ending of his power. His arm is not too short to act. They shared that not knowing what we'd talk about this morning. God wants to communicate to this room today, I am the all-powerful God. You can trust me. Jesus was that God in human flesh. And the ultimate display of his meekness, of his power under control, began in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was ambushed and arrested. His disciples initially tried to fight back. That was their instinct. But look how Jesus responded as recorded in Matthew chapter 26. It says this. It says, describing the scene in the garden, the men, these are the guards that came to arrest Jesus, they stepped forward, they seized Jesus, and they arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, one of his disciples, reached out, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus, as we read in another passage, actually reached out and healed that man. Jesus then goes on to say this. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions, 12 armies of angels? But if I were to do that, how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? Jesus was God in flesh. Jesus had all the power and authority of the universe at his disposal. And Jesus let them arrest him. He let them bind him. They didn't overpower Jesus. He had the power to stop them. He just didn't use that power. He kept his power under control. He relied upon his father's plan. And what did his father's plan include? Well, from Gethsemane, they went across the Kidron Valley up into the city, and he was taken uh, by these guards, and he was beaten by them, and punched, and, and blindfolded, and they would punch him when he had the blindfold on, and they'd say, tell us, prophesy, Messiah, who punched you, if you're so smart, if you're so knowing, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and mocked him, and beat him some more. He could have stopped them, but he didn't. And then they took him to a fake, fixed, phony trial, a mock trial with lying uh, witnesses and lying testimony. And they convicted him of a crime that they know that he didn't commit. He could have stopped them, but he didn't. And then they took him to the public post where they tied him there and they publicly whipped him with a cat of nine tails, which was a Roman type of, of whip that on the end of the, the, the leather was frayed into pieces and then they would embed pieces of bone into the end so the bone would grab the flesh and pull at the flesh so it would rip right down to the spine, right down to your, to your skeleton. And they did that 39 times. You whip them. They chose 39 because that was just enough to not kill you. And then he could have stopped it, but he didn't. They then led him to the hill, and they nailed his feet and his hands to a cross, and they hung him there to slowly die for hours. He could have stopped them, but he didn't. So picture it. God in flesh, the creator of the universe, hanging, slowly dying, 
on a cross, beaten and humiliated by his own creation. So why didn't Jesus fight back? Why didn't Jesus save himself? It wasn't because he was a wimp. It was because he was meek. His power was under control. His power was not poisoned. His power was never used for his own benefit. His power was only used for higher purposes. He said, I only do what I see my father do. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? It doesn't mean wimp. It means power under control. Moses was meek. He was falsely accused, falsely attacked, falsely and publicly humiliated. Instead of lashing out in his own power, Moses relied upon God's power. Moses relied upon God's plan. And in doing so, he experienced all that was promised to him. In doing so, he led the people out of the horrors of their Egyptian bondage. Jesus was meek. He was falsely accused, falsely attacked, publicly humiliated. But instead of lashing out in his own power, Jesus relied upon the Father's power. Jesus relied upon the Father's plan. And in doing so, he experienced all that was promised to him. In doing so, he delivered humanity from the horror of our bondage to sin. And that brings us to today's big idea where we sum it up in one simple sentence. Here it is. It's when you rely upon God's power that you receive God's promises. When you rely upon God's power, you receive God's promises. Go back to that initial audience, that, that, that hillside full of first century Palestinian Jews. They believed that the only way they could get back their inheritance, they believed the only way they could inherit the soil, the land that was theirs, their promised land, was to overpower those dirty, rotten Romans. Don't you understand? We're under occupation by a foreign power. Only a violent revolution is going to return to us our inheritance. What do you mean the meek will inherit the land, Jesus? Are you crazy? It's the strong that will come out victorious. You've got to make it happen, Jesus. You've got to take the power into your own hands. We have to overwhelm the Romans with brute force. We've got to get back our promised inheritance. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land. They will inherit the earth. It's when you rely upon God's power that you receive God's promises. Look again at Jesus' words that he used to describe himself. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Is that you? Are you feeling weary and burdened as you sit here today? Do you feel powerless? Do you feel overwhelmed by your circumstances? Are you feeling bullied? Do you feel like you're exhausted from trying to make things happen in your life? You feel like because of your circumstances, you're clearly outside of the category of being blessed by God. He has abandoned you. He's not blessing you. You're being pushed around and bullied around. Jesus says, Come to me. I know you're exhausted. I know you're weary. I know you're burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This word yoke, it's the device that's placed on the shoulders of a beast of burden, like an oxen. It, 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 like oxen. It, it's a device that's placed on the shoulders of a powerful animal to steer them. 
It's a metaphor for God's plan for you, for God's direction for your life. He says, take my direction upon you. Let me guide you, for I am gentle. I am meek. I am humble in heart towards you. You will find rest for your souls. Notice something here. It's his meekness that gives you confidence at your weakest moments. It's his meekness where his blessing abides. He never lashes out at you in the midst of your struggle. He never lashes out. He never gives up on you in the face of your failure. Come to me, Jesus said. You, I see you. I see that you're weary. I see that you're burdened. Come to me. I promise you, I will give you rest. I am meek towards you. I will never use my power to harm you. Never. I'm humble in my heart towards you. I promise you, you will find rest for your soul. Do you need rest? Do you need strength? He has everything you need, but you have to come to him. You have to rely upon him. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's when you rely upon God's power that you receive God's promises. So what about your life? Who or what is swirling around you right now? Rely upon his power and receive his promises. Are you wondering where God is in the midst of your trial? Oh, you've tried calling down fire from the heavens on your enemies, but nothing. No fire, no thunder, no lightning, nothing, only raindrops. Lots and lots and lots of raindrops. Are you seeing the absence of God's willingness to batter your enemy as the absence of God's willingness to bless you? No. Are you tempted to make up for God's apparent lack of activity with some activity of your own? You're going to make it happen. It's when you rely upon God's power that you receive God's promise. Hear me. Please hear me. God is present with you right now. He is with you as a follower of Jesus in the midst of your struggle. God has not abandoned you. You thought his blessing had been withdrawn from you. But his blessing is what has been sustaining you in the midst of this battering that you're taking. You thought his blessing had been removed from you. But it's his blessing that's been protecting you in the midst of this humiliation you've been undergoing. As you call upon his power, you're aligned with him. In the midst of it, you're aligned with him. As you rest upon his presence in the midst of your struggle, you're in sync with him. As you rely upon his word in the middle of your battle, you are being endorsed by him. God's not withdrawn his blessing from your life. He is with you, and you will discover and experience his blessing right where you are. <laughs> 